Before you dive into this exciting episode, I'd like to let you know about the Squash Playbook, your tactical blueprint for success. The playbook is written based on the most common solutions I have given to the people I coach over the last 20 years. It is the ultimate how-to guide for any squash fan, and you can grab a free copy right away by visiting squashplaybook.com or clicking on the link in the show notes. Are you freaked out by that hard-hitting hacker? Frustrated with running out of ideas against the relentless retriever? Want to close out matches more clinically when in the lead? Or do you need some mental tools to overcome bad calls by referees? These answers plus many more have been brought together all in one place for the squash community. The Squash Playbook is a practical toolkit that breaks down over 40 scenarios that are most commonly faced on the court. Each scenario provides the psychology and the strategy needed to get a positive result. Each chapter wraps up with the top six key points to keep things simple and practical. The aim of the book is to transform reactive players into proactive tacticians. I focus on breaking down complex situations into straightforward, effective strategies for those high pressure moments in a match. So why not grab your copy now and step onto the court next time with a clear head and a set of strategies to win those matches you know you're capable of. Please enjoy the show. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the next episode in the Squash Mind podcast series. I hope you're enjoying some of these chats. I, for one, am so enthralled with talking about the mind and getting these guests on the show. And today's guest is not going to disappoint in the slightest. I welcome an absolute legend of the game. And when I say legend, I really mean legend. We've got Nick Matthew on the show today. To be able to have Nick come on and talk about his mindset is just a pure delight for me and something that I feel so lucky to be able to do. Nick and I knew each other a little bit as players back in the day, um, nowhere near his level of course, but was lucky enough to play in the same league team as him for a little bit um, and yeah, got to know him a little bit there, but got to know him a lot better since retiring and since he retired, I was lucky enough to interview him for my master's research project uh, a few years back and this is pretty much a follow-up chat from there, a bit of a more deeper dive into the mental side of the game. And, you know, Nick's career has been well-documented, just an absolute giant of the game, someone who wins three World Open titles, three British Open titles, is 10 times British national champion, 
and just add three Commonwealth gold medals to that as well to uh, to make sure. And those are just some of his events, US Opens, Tournament of Champions, the list goes on and on and on. You know, there's not many people in the game that have achieved more than him. So to be able to get him on the show to discuss the mind and what he perceives as mental toughness and looking at some of the habits, the routines that he does and just unpacking it with him, just reliving some of his greatest matches. We talk a lot about the inner voice and what phrases and words he uses for himself. He shines a light on his planning and how meticulous he is as a planner from a young age and how this built into his professional career. And he's just super honest and open about what works for him, what is his process, what gets him to be the player that he is and was. And we also take a little bit of a deeper dive into his coaching and his mindset of his coaching and talking about the Nick Matthew Academy, which is producing some really successful players. And, you know, I think you got to watch what's going to happen in the next few years. He is utterly humble, really grounded, really down to earth, talks amazingly about the stuff he knows, but is the first to admit that he is learning and continually growing. And that's just the sign of greatness, the sign of, of, of a legend um, who can look at things in that way with a, with a growth mindset, who can be ready and willing to improve themselves as a player, as a coach, and how they communicate. We, uh, we did get joined a little bit uh, by his daughter, Charlotte, near on in the beginning, and she was a delight. She didn't make an appearance voice-wise, which was a shame. I was hoping she would uh, jump on for a chat. But hope you enjoy this conversation coming up. I know a lot of people have been looking forward to me having a chat with Nick, and I, for one, loved it to bits. I think he got quite a lot out of it, looked like he enjoyed it as well. And please welcome Nick Matthew. Nick Matthew, how's it going? Welcome to the next episode of the Squash Mind podcast series. Hi, Jesse. How are you doing, buddy? Yeah, good, thanks. I, I think we're going to be joined by, by a guest very soon. So we're going, to, we're going to probably welcome Charlotte at some point, which will be really cool. So thank you for doing this, man. Thank you for spending the time. Um, you know, you are, you're one of the, the, the first guys on the list that I wanted to have a chat to about this. And we've been batting it back and forth a little bit and finally got a day. So yeah, really, really chuffed and excited to, to be here with you, man. And um, so I think a great place to start is having a little look back at your junior career but I believe tennis was featured really highly with your early stages can you talk us through the the, the tennis process and how you actually became a, a lover of squash yeah I um tennis was my first racket sport that I knew about to be honest so you've got my daughter in the background there you can see all the homeschooling stuff going on home haircuts <laughs> last week we had a home illness so it's all kicking off um but now um Tennis was my first sort of, I would say second or third sport in love. I love the team sports to start with football, cricket. I love that interaction of all the, the different sports and the interaction of the different players on the team. But yeah, tennis was my first introduction to racket sports. That happened through school where they came to do sort of an after school sort of taster club. And, you know, if it's on, it's free, you have a go. And the follow-up from that was to go to your local club if you enjoyed it, come and have a free trial and got into tennis a little bit from them. And the short tennis was the sort of the, I don't know if you've ever seen that, um, with the sponge ball. That was my sort of introduction, the vehicle that sort of a bit like mini squash, really, the introduction to tennis. And I managed to sort of somehow work my way into squash from there. You know, it was at the same club. So whether I just tried both, my, my parents played squash, the crossover sort of got a bit blurred it's many, many years ago now. It's over 30 years ago. So your memory gets a little bit blurred over time. But yeah. I definitely did a, both of them together at various stages and then just gradually um, gravitated towards squash over a bit of time. Yeah, you, you were very kind enough a couple of years ago to help me with a, a research project I did and, and came up to Sheffield and we, we had a great chat around the mindset, the mental toughness. And, and actually, this is where this conversation almost is the part two to that. And I remember you telling me the story about tennis. I, th I think it was quite vivid in my mind of you sitting in a car with your dad and it being a little bit, a bit dark and damp and rainy and stuff. And maybe the social side of things wasn't as fun in the tennis side and I remember you taught, telling me a story about actually you enjoyed the indoors and the the ability to muck around with your mates is that a memory that you can remember yeah I, I remember don't get me wrong I love the tennis but I played it probably for 
two years and I don't remember having a single friend wow. from it. It the very much memory for me was hanging out with my dad in between matches. Mm-hmm. You know, if it was an outdoor tournament, being in the car, driving, not really knowing anyone there with the squash, just there was a lot better, clearer pathway in terms of making friends from the club through to the sort of county, through to then go to junior tournaments, playing the three-quarter court, and you'd meet people, you know, the court rats that jump on in between matches and play a bit of three-quarter court for 20 minutes where there's a three-court. And, yeah, I just remember being like having loads of friends at squash and then all week at school you'd look forward to seeing them the next weekend. And when the sports are pretty 50-50 in terms of which you like the actual playing of them, they're the things to me that make the, the difference in terms of getting you hooked so I'm curious to unpack something because you were you were classed as as arguably the mentally toughest player there was and watching your games and the way you were able to just dig in and fight and you know really get yourself into this this unbelievable mental state. So as a youngster, can you think of any examples of maybe some natural characteristic or traits that you had that you might have exhibited that lent themselves to being mentally tough later on in your career? Good question. Um, I don't know if they were to mental toughness, but I was always like a real planner. You know, like I loved meticulously mapping things out. Like I used to create these golf tournaments that we'd play sort of put put around the house, you know, crazy golf around the house or, and there'd be all the Nick Faldo's, Greg Norman's, all the golfers that were around that show my age on and now do that. Um, same thing for sort of, even just playing like the equivalent of FIFA on your computer mm-hmm. at that time, you know, I had to design a tournament that we would play, right. you know, you couldn't just go on there and just play it. I had to structure it. And I never ended up finishing half of these tournaments that I did, but half the fun for me was in the planning. Okay. And I think that I was always meticulous in everything that I did. If I did something, I had to do it properly. So if I made a mistake, I'd scrub it out and like I wouldn't just scrub it out, sorry, and just carry on. I had to rip that paper up and start completely from scratch. It had to be all, you know, different colours and different fonts and different. <laughs> and, you know, my dad was a PE teacher. My mum was an English teacher. So sort of a mix of both in that. I like the actual doing, but I liked the sort of the, the neat handwriting and the structure. And I don't know if that sort of filtered yeah. into the way I enjoyed planning my training week to get the most out of your week and the, mm. just getting the most out of every session. And to be honest, the whole mental toughness thing, is such a broad phrase, isn't it? As you know, but a lot of it, I think stemmed from being organized mm-hmm. and being like independently minded. So I always took sort of pride in being organized. Your bedroom wasn't chaos. It's like I figured if your bedroom was chaos, then how's this not gonna how's that gonna be organized? And mm. you know, you're gonna be organized on the court if your racket bag looks like a bomb hit it. You know, I quite to me the two things went hand in hand. And all right, that wasn't mental toughness as such, but that to me gave me the platform to build, you know, organization, structure, discipline, mm. dedication, all those little things started to come from from that. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you, you, you recognized it early on in yourself. Like you like that planning and, and going with it. And, and it, it sounds like it, it just spilt into your, your young junior career and then spilt into your pro career. So I definitely think there is a correlation there that you were able to cultivate that habit. And, and that, that's what I'm getting really into. Habits is a good way for doing it. Yeah. And doing, yeah. If, if something's worth doing it, doing it sort of properly mm-hmm. and, you know, taking the care over it at the time and doing it to the best of your ability, all those sort of things. And then I think where I sort of struggled, not struggled, but it took me time to realise is that a game of squash, doesn't, there's an element of structure to it. And the better you play, you can control that structure to a point, but it is sort of random. Yeah. You know, you can't control what your opponents play to a point. And you know, there's, it's, it's not going to, and it happens very quickly. So you got to think on the spot. So it's sort of, you could be the best planner. So my, what I learned to do is be prepared as best as you could. And then when you actually came on the court, then you had to figure out over time, figuring out how to adapt and, mm. and how to use all those qualities when things were a bit out of your control. That was the thing that probably took me time to develop because I wanted it all that neatly mapped out in front of me and squash don't work like that. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting what you say that 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 lends itself to a little bit what what I chat about with Laura Masara. I think she talked about she had to soften her mindset at a certain point because I think she was a planner and maybe DP there might be an overlap there. I know DP is not necessarily the biggest planner, but he's the opposite. Like, so we were per- like you know I'd be literally on everything, and he'd just be like he never did a lesson plan in his life. You know what do you want to work on today? You know what we're going to do? He was very much sort of a free spirit off the cuff. Um, so that, that was a lovely dovetailing. I think if he had someone else who was the same way, there she is. <laughs> I think uh, if he had someone else who was exactly the same way, then it might not work as well. But for us, it was a nice. Um, for us, it was a nice mix. So just going back a, a tiny little step about that that planning phase you had as as a youngster. So was it the planning that motivated you or was it the competitive side? What, what, what can you talk about there? Oh, um, probably a bit of both. You know, I think you, to me, you can't have one without the other. I think if you just planned, then, you know, where's, where's the fun in that? You have to actually act it out. But then quite often or not, like I said, when I did those, competitions that are planned out and things like that. Like half the time I didn't finish them. So, you know, you're doing the planning to be able to compete and to create some sort of meaning in your own mind, even if that's it's nothing, but in your own mind, it gives it meaning. You know, so right. when we play cricket in the back garden, it had to be, you know, every over you had to add this, write the scorecard, what happened. And cricket's actually a great example of my mind. Like I loved being the captain for the cricket team, because I loved figuring out, it was that nice balance of, you've got a plan, you know, you've got 20 overs, you've got five top bowlers, you're allowed four overs each. So it's very simply, you've got a plan, those five bowlers got to bowl four overs each. You might have a set plan, the openers bowl two each and you save a couple back and then you bring the next by on and so on. Mm-hmm. But very rarely, and you might have the field plan for this bowler and a certain plan for another bowler, but very rarely did it go to plan. One of the bowlers might have been injured or one of the batsmen was doing really well. So you wanted to, you know, you had to adjust, adjust and adapt. And I was always a sick bowler where I'd come on just for an over or two because I was a bit of a partnership breaker. Nice. But then if I bowled for more than two overs, they figured me out and then I went for runs. So I was a sort of the little bit of the ace in the pack for the, but I loved doing quirky fields. And that to me was a perfect synergy of element of planning, mm-hmm. but then being able to think on your feet on the, and the competitive side was what brought it to life. And to me, being a cricket captain was, was that ultimate synergy of planning versus doing. Nice. Love that. It's a great, great link and a great analogy. And I love linking cricket to squash because it's got such an individual element as well. You know, it's a team sport, but it's probably the closest individual sport you could, or closest team sport that, that I link to squash because of that batter bowler relationship. And, but that leads me on to my next little bit about your planning and, and maybe how this helped a little bit. So your pre-match and also maybe pre-point habits and rituals you used to perform in your career, what were these and, and how do you think they actually maybe helped you? I think um, pre-match, I distinctly remember two phases to to this. I think when I was younger, just being a, right, who am I playing? Do I know them? Yes or no. If I don't know them, just go out there and play your own game, adapt to the court conditions a little bit, which I think sometimes gets forgotten especially in junior squash you know you're used to court seven at your local club and then you play on a completely different court and you it's freezing or it's different height roof or whatever and just the balls rebound differently and you've got to adapt to every court so a lot of it my dad got me to you know and use the knock-up to adapt to the figure out the court um a lot of it was based around do I know the opponent if I do then yeah they're not that fit play some long rallies and and it was all opponent based the mm-hmm. second phase of my um, career was probably from 27, 28, which was, you know, it's been well documented in the squash world by now, but having the nine months off the court through shoulder surgery and I sort of came back a different animal physically, there's no doubt, but I also came back a different animal mentally because I'd had the time out to step back and look at where I needed to adapt. And I did a lot of work around my own strengths in that period, how I can identify and then add to my own strengths. So game plan started to then be built around what I wanted to do. 
okay so yes I'm playing Rami Ashore so you very much have to respect and, and watch out for what he's very very fantastic at but I also want to do this to him mm. and there was definitely an element of that in that first phase of my career as I said but it was just there was a slight twist in, in it slight, slight tweak sorry in the brain in terms of a rewiring in terms of the believe in the damage that you could do if you got this your side of the game right mm-hmm. and the time it might have just been, it might be one of those things that it happened at the right time for me because if I'd have gone into that mindset at 18 I might have not had the strengths to do what I wanted to do then yeah totally. you know so you know if you've got glaring weaknesses it's difficult to impose your strengths on someone because someone's going to maybe get to your weaknesses first Whereas when you were, I was already a top 10 player in the world, you're building from a good platform. I, I needed to figure out at that point how to get to number one. Mm-hmm. And that was the thing that got me to number one more than anything uh, yeah. at that point. Yeah, I, I was, there was a question um, from one, one of the players. There's a few questions I'll, I'll ask you towards the end from some players who were really keen to ask some things about you. And that, that was one of the questions was how did you, we saw your evolution physically in your career and how you had to adapt to the game and how you stayed right at that peak of the game, you know, right towards the end of your career. And the question was, how did you adapt mentally? But, but you seem like you've answered that really well. But my question linked to that was, you know, the concept of visualizations and did you practice these and could you talk us through them? Did, did you bring them more into your later part of your career? Did you do them as a youngster? Later. I, I remember my dad introduced me to it way back when, when I was younger and he, I said he was a PE teacher. He was quite innovative in his thinking and whilst he, he didn't want to cross that line and be like a pushy parent, he also wanted to offer me the tools that, you know, here's an idea. Do you like it or not? And he very much put it in my court. Do you like that? And I remember doing a bit of goal setting, a bit of visualization with it and probably picked up stuff from it. Didn't necessarily stick at it mm-hmm. when I was younger, but it, I definitely, it was somewhere in the back there that I remember the concept and I'd learned it at a young age, which I think always helps. And then probably then revisited it later when you realized then maybe the, the tools that I gained around strengths then opened a door back to that because I was able Otherwise, it's like, what are you actually visualizing? Whereas when you had a clear identity about the way I wanted to play, what I wanted to impose, um, I could suddenly then start to visualize that. It gave me something a bit more specific as what to visualize. It wasn't just visualizing me and you playing. I was visualizing what I was trying to do on the court. And then it helped me feel that. You know, a lot of visualization is about the feeling, isn't it? It's not just... You know, I remember learning that you don't just want to sit back and watch yourself on telly doing it. You want to feel yourself doing those. And I always found that to be the hard thing about visualization was to actually shut your eyes and feel the movement without you actually doing it. And having an identity of how I wanted to play helped me feel it for sure. Mm. Yeah, no, like really- I use it a lot in injuries, actually. Mm. So I remember sort of having times when you were sort of stuck injured and you weren't maybe being able to train as much as you would like. I remember the Commonwealth Games in 2014. I had knee surgery four and a half weeks before the event and I had to sit for two hours a day with an ice machine, the game ready on my knee. And I basically used to just spend, so it's 15 minutes at a time and that 15 minutes I'd sit on, because I wasn't on the court, I'd sit on the physio bed and it was 15 minutes. The physio knew she's not going to come and talk to me at that time. She can have a chat and take your mind off it at other times, but that 15 minutes when I had the game ready on, was my 15 minutes where I tried to imagine myself playing at the Commonwealth Games so that I couldn't train, but I was trying to bridge that gap. So I did use it more and more later on. Yeah. Sometimes out of necessity, sometimes out of choice. Yeah. Uh, no, I'd really. like to have done it more. Sometimes it's not enough hours in the day to do everything and you need to yeah. rest too. And that's the challenge now when I'm being a coach. You know, I sometimes throw all this idea. So you try visualising, if you try foam rolling, if you try, <laughs> don't forget this energy drink, watch your matches back. And then the players like comes in the next day, like not slept because they've tried <laughs> to do all of them, you know, and they can't train properly because they're knackered. So there's definitely a balance in the two, all these things. Yeah, no, you, you speak a lot of things that, that I really resonate with the visualisation, especially that point of, as a youngster, you might not be ready to hear it. And, and that's what I find fascinating as coaching. You know, I could introduce visualization really well to someone, but actually at that point in the career, they're not ready to hear it. And it sounds like you went through that evolution, you were introduced to it, but actually 
only as a later pro that it really hit the mark. And I think, you know, you allude to your coaching and it sounds like you're learning skills. When I came back to it, I definitely knew, I kind of felt like I had a head start, definitely yeah. from, from being introduced to it earlier. I knew what the idea was behind it rather than being a completely new concept. You know, you can get sometimes a bit set in your ways as you get older. And that could be a good thing and a bad thing. And I think if it hadn't been introduced to me really early, I might not have tapped into it later. Mm -hmm. Yep, no, true. And, and that's yep, something I'm trying to plant those seeds and sounds like you're doing it with your players as well. And Just plant a seed and if they don't quite sprout in the short term, they might come back to it, you know? Yep, totally. So something I've been really curious about recently and, and thought about a lot is, is our inner voice and the language we speak to ourselves in. So could you talk about during possibly really tense moments and matches and maybe on the cusp of winning a World Open, what is your inner voice like? What, what, what's going on in that mind? Again, I think really similar to the visualization. I remember being introduced to this sort of stuff a bit younger and a lot of it was sort of just maybe coming up with a key word just before you served. Like having the ball in the hand was a big thing, I think, in squash. For some reason, I always felt more confident with that inner voice when I was serving versus receiving. I don't know why that is, because obviously you can win the same amount of points either way. A point's a point, you know, you don't have to be serving. But something about, I don't know whether it's the old mindset in squash where you can only win a point serving or mm. when you're serving, you can control the pace of the game. You can bounce the ball an extra couple of times if you need to. You can wipe your hand an extra. You feel like you're in charge, don't you, when you're mm. serving? So I remember when I was serving, sort of starting to just pick up, you know, just a key word here and there, whether it's just believe or, you know, push or go or volley or, you know, just these little key words that you'd experiment with a little bit. I think when I was younger, they were perhaps just a little bit random. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd try, I wasn't very good at switching off in between rallies. So I'd try switch off and then I'd try switch back on again before the next one and tried loads of different things and then probably revisited this again later on, really. Mm -hmm. And it probably started again when I became aware of it when there was a couple of PSA tournaments in Sheffield in my hometown in the Crucible. And the first two years we had the tournament here, I really struggled with it. And I think I put too much pressure on myself to perform in front of everyone. You know, you spend all year round going around the world and people are following you. And then all of a sudden you come to your hometown and you want to show people how, how you've improved and that you're competitive, you're competitive and you want to win and blah, blah, blah. And, and I put too many external pressures on myself. So it was the third year of this tournament, probably around 2005, where I went with the psychologist about sort of controlling those controllables and the things that, you know, worrying about who's watching or whether you got them some tickets or whatever, like handle that, keep that out and what you can focus on. And, and a lot of that was developing what the inner voice was and mm. telling yourself on things what were you know, processes, not outcomes. You can't control the winning or losing, but I can control what I'm going to do in the next point and so on. And it started with an awareness of putting too much pressure on myself at home for mm. home matches. We had the same thing. We had PSL at my home club and I was awful the first season because I felt like I want to show everyone, all my friends, but I've got better. Yeah. And I stopped thinking about the things that you would have thought about anywhere else. Yeah. And, and yeah, and then you sort of went from there really. Mm. So how did you, did you set aside dedicated time during your week to work on the stuff or was it in the session with your psychologist? In the session, in, in the, the session, session, in the session. I, I dedicated time with the psychologist. Mm -hmm. I think in the early times of the relationship, I had a guy called Mark Borden who worked with England Cricket. He's got his own company now called Mindflick. He works with a lot of different businesses, not just in sport, but outside because um, there's so many crossovers, right? Um and he wasn't a squash person. So I think to start with, we had a lot more volume of sessions until he got to know me, watched a lot of my matches play. So he got to figure out the sport, got to figure out me. And then over time, it was more of a sort of a monthly catch-up kind of thing. And we tried to make it regular so that it wasn't a, I'm having problems, fix me sort yeah, of thing. Of it was a, let's meet regardless, even if things go well, badly, we keep in a continuity and that worked for us. Mm. And um there was that. And then I just tried to put them into play in the practice. I think too much of these things, we always talk technique, we talk tactics, we talk physical, we talk mental. And too often we put, it's good to have them all in their four separate boxes, but there's so many crossovers between the boxes and totally. ultimately you need them all firing together. So mainly I put them into practicing sessions mm -hmm. um, 
you know, when I was playing on the court, worked on certain things. And so I knew going on to the session what the focus was today and tried to stick at it. And going back to that inner voice thing, I think the thing where you really saw it kick in and you saw the benefit of it was when you touched upon it there, you were close to being successful. Mm-hmm. I think that you don't realize how good it all is until you get to eight, five up in the fifth game of the world championship final. And you're like, Oh my God, I'm going I can win this. And then you stop and your head, you start feeling your heart rate through your head. <laughs> you know, you've got the adrenaline times 3000% and you're going crazy in here. And you've got to somehow forget about where you are, what you're doing, what the score is, and you've got to go back to those processes. So that was big things for me. I remember the the Saudi world, my first ever worlds, I beat James in the final. And I actually won the last two games, 3-1. I actually won the last two games, I think 11-3, 11-3. So on score, it wasn't close. But I remember just being completely almost, it was almost when I won, it was a bit like, have I won? Because I was just telling myself, don't think of the score, like, you know, process, process, process all the time and blacked out the score to a point because I was scared of thinking suddenly about, oh my God, I can win this. And then before you know it, your opponent creeps back to Mm. eight, nine, and then you're edgy. Yeah. But that's that's Um, so difficult to do. The way you explain it, brilliant. You got into the zone and you blacked out, but arguably that's one of the most difficult things to do, isn't it? As, as a, as a pro and, and you see these people almost on the edge of success and man, and they just fail at the last minute. Yeah. Well, you start thinking about it. You start thinking about what it is that you're about to do rather than up to that point when the finish line's not within touching distance, you know, I think we're all capable of living in the moment and then you just go ahead of yourself and start living in the future. And that's like the biggest mistake you can do, isn't it? And like, um, yeah, that was a sort of a, a big one. And I think the, the key to it is when under pressure, you have to keep it simple as possible. So that might just be one word, one phrase, because you and, and people always who have maybe not been in those situations maybe think they want it to be more complicated than that. They want you, tell me something that's magic formula that you know, X plus Y equals pi squared, or tell me this formula for it. And you go, no, no. I literally said to myself, hit the back wall. Wow. And then, you know, I won my first British Open. I remember in the fifth game, I told myself, move your feet, move your feet, move your feet, because I was getting nervous. And I just told myself something that basic. And people are almost disappointed <laughs> when they hear that, because they're like, going, well, I can do that. And I'm a club player in, in level six in my club. And I tell myself to move my feet. It doesn't work for me. <laughs> So, and they're almost a bit disappointed that you're not telling them a more, you know, you're not giving them the answer really. But at the highest level, it's it's crazy. You have to keep it even more simple than ever. Mm. And that's totally a theme that that I'm I'm investigating more and and how we can or like use a. Co- One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Coach now, me as a coach, how we can get our players to practice this. And that's why I asked the question of you practicing it away from the tournaments and events. Sounds like you folded it into your training. And and if we can practice resetting and being in the moment more often in, in all parts of our life, 
hopefully the spillover becomes stronger when you need it under pressure. And, and that's something I'm really investigating and trying to get that. And you can't, and you, yeah, you can't replicate the adrenaline and you can't replicate it to a complete, but you know, you try your best, right? You try to bridge that gap. You try to, you know, keep it simple and like, you know, but then you go too far the other way. So there's probably been times in matches where I've told myself, hit the back wall and that's all I've done. Yeah, I and I've got yeah, but you have to play a drop shot as well, <laughs> you know, or you have to get in front, you have to volley, and you have to do them. Yeah, yeah. But what it is is you maybe told yourself that one thing that you hope had a knock-on effect to three mm. or four other things that you did a bit more automatically and instinctively, and hopefully, if you were in a big final, you were in good form. Mm-hmm. So you just needed to remind yourself of the basics, and the window dressing was sort of in good order. Yep. But it's sort of like if you, when you are in those points, you can start to get ahead of yourself and start to do the window dressing before you've done the, the, the basics, right? So mm. it, is, it is funny, but you know we're all capable of going too far the other way. You know, we like to say we move our feet and then we forget to hit the ball tight and then you try to hit the back wall and you forget to do a drop shot and so on but generally speaking keeping it simple one word one phrase was a big one for me um perhaps with just a plan b in your back pocket for you know and knowing when to implement that was a challenge because mm. You know, we've all been there where we start to implement plan B after five rallies and you're like, oh, maybe that's a bit too early. You should stick with it a bit longer. But um, having that plan B in the back pocket's good. Mm. But generally speaking, plan A is like one word. Mm. Because unfortunately, when you play a Gregory Goltier, a Rami Ashura, a Mohamed El Shabagi, you haven't got time to think about more than one word anyway. Mm. But you hopefully have practiced at that intensity so you can have the calmness of thought mm that you make good decisions on the cuff as you, as you go in. Yeah. Love. Oh, such awesome advice. Such little gold nuggets. And anyone who's listening, hopefully. So it's like sport at a high level is fast. Yeah. You know, I remember talking to Alistair Cook once, go back to cricket and he, you know, he, when he was going through his best phase, he just told me that he just said to himself, watch the ball, wow. watch the ball. And you're like, is that? come on, there's got to be more to it than that. And he, no, he just watched the ball. Brilliant. That's so honestly such such good words, and hopefully we can get some of the juniors hearing that. So so listen, you've won three British Opens, you're world champion three times, three gold medals at Commonwealth Games. Never got to a four of anything, did I? Never got to a well, yeah, nine <laughs> British national champions. So there's ten, ten mate. Sorry, ten. sorry, ten. Come on, Jesse. I remember. I, Don't I, undersell me, mate. Uh, Come on. Um, and look, <laughs> Nick, that's that's just a, a small part of your career. It's absolutely phenomenal. So I don't know where you want to begin here, but could you talk us through some of your more special wins um, and what they meant for your different points in your career? Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, the it's a British Open, the first one, 2006, you know, that to me was a big one because it was the starting point for me. Like, even though I didn't get to World One until four years later, World Champions four years later, but that to me was the first major title that I won. It was a little bit out of the blue to anyone who was sort of following squash. To me, that was the year when I started to get the belief. I won the Nationals in the February, which mm-hmm. was a big win for me. I beat Peter Nickel in the semis, Lee Beach in the final, who'd been the Nationals king hmm. up until that point. Um, and yeah, I was sort of ready to do something. I didn't think I was going to win the British Open. And the big memory for that was it was in Nottingham, the University of Nottingham. I was playing Thierry Dinku in the final. And somehow I got through to the final, a bit of luck with the draw, played well at times. He'd had three five-setters in a row. Hmm. And so I was he was ranked higher than me, but perhaps I was marginal favourite based on the draw. And I just remember people all day long coming up to me and being like, you know, an English player's not won the British Open for 69 years. Wow. <laughs> and I'm like going, and all of a sudden I've been in my little bubble and, you know, no one's expecting me to do anything here. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, hang on a minute, it can make a bit of squash history here. Sure. And the pressure that, you know, I perhaps wasn't as, as fine-tuned in those days about the sort of pre-match ritual of having your food and then having a, a pre-match nap and these different things. I perhaps wasn't quite as in the... The, the same thing and I just remember um, being very 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 nervous and Thierry pulled it back to two all I ended up winning the fifth that's when I said just move my feet because I basically just became stuck in stone on the tee and I was maybe five three down in the fifth wow. I looked to him and I'm like this guy's out on his feet but I'm hitting every ball with a glass arm 
So I just kept it simple. I said, right, move your feet, get the pace up and managed to sort of hack my way through it. And so, so you that, were still nervous at that that two all and five three in the fifth, like the nerves were there at the beginning, but I think did they it was, disappear? They were there at the beginning and then it all came on me. Oh my God, I'm going to blow it. Oh, wow. Sure. So the getting over the line there was a big one. Yeah. Um, ironically, I then had a bad patch of three, four months, you know, I think because I was always in the juniors. I was never number one. I was always the chaser. I enjoyed that mindset of, always being something, having something to prove, someone to prove wrong, always chasing the pack, you know, and, and when I, I think I got to the juniors, number one in England, the back end of the under 19s, and I was number one seed for the nationals and lost in the semi-final because I wasn't used to being the number one seed. And I felt suddenly a different, I felt like I was carrying around my racket bag with me when I was on the court. I felt pressure. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, heavy shoulders. And so I wasn't used to being that. I and mean, when I won the British Open, I think I, I then put pressure on myself to then go and do that sort of level of performance every week. And I didn't do too well on the tour for about three, four months after that, because I was like, I don't know whether I got complacent or whether I thought I'd cracked it or whether I just put too much pressure on myself or what, but I struggled for a few months after that. And then it wasn't until the following year where then I was starting to get the consistency back 2007. And that's then when I had the shoulder surgery took the time off and then I came back in that sort of second phase of my career is when I sort of went on to do some of the, mm. the things that perhaps people are synonymous with when they, when they think of my career, they might think of um, winning the Worlds in Manchester perhaps, uh, which was a great one. Um, third world title. Yeah. The third world title in Manchester 2013 was a big one because I'd, I'd won two, the first one in Al-Kabar in Saudi Arabia in 2010 you know, I had this, I think we all have, the, have an image of what it's like, life-changing experience of becoming world champion. And I remember winning, we were staying in this com military compound. We weren't allowed coaches there, no one. There was nowhere to go, nothing to do, just your room. And I remember winning and I'm sat there in this compound with the trophy in my room and just looking around going, is that it? Yeah, is this, this not what they told me it was? What's this? Is that it? You know, the co my coach had gone, the physio had gone, wow. there was no players left. And I was just sitting there and we had a 4am wake up call to go to another tournament in India the next day. And I think I went to sleep at about half past three because I just couldn't sleep. I was just lying awake, just thinking, just become world champion, but feel the same as I did before. I expected to feel different. That was really weird. That sounds weird, yeah. So contrast that with the Manchester one when all your friends and family were there, perhaps maybe wasn't sure if that was beyond me at that point, three years later, whether I still had it in me at 33, 34, to become world champion again. That was big. And then being able to share it with everyone and... Remember going to, again, going to bed at about five in the morning. I had to be up at six to go on BBC breakfast to, and very hungover on that. My <laughs> wife had to actually put some makeup on me to hide the bags. Yes. It's like very, winning the ashes almost. <laughs> yeah. Very, very contrasting emotions between those worlds. You know, one where it felt the loneliest person in the world and one where you felt like mm. I could have parted for a week. Mm. So, that's I just love this fascinating way of looking at things and, and those contrasts. The British Open must hold a, a close place in your heart and, you know, winning three British Opens. Can you can you talk about that? Because obviously being British yourself and, and, and how has that experience been for you? Well, the British Open was always the one for me, you know, the when it was at Wembley. I used to make the, um, you know, it was like going to the pilgrimage. Uh, every Easter down to Wembley to watch Jahanga, Jansha, Susan Devoy, Michelle Martin, Sarah Fitzgerald, you know, Peter Marshall, we were cheering on um, those legends. And that was the Wimbledon of squash. That was amazing. Wembley Conference Centre was unreal. And so the British Open was always, you know, it had a dip and then it started to get back. And, and I remember winning it as it was sort of on its way back. And I think I reserved... My best, I had, a, I had a, the one in 2006 with Thierry. The 2009 one was just chaos with James. I mean, what an awful oh, match. Man, match. Awful yeah. match. I mean, when you compare the level of that match to the one we had at Canary Wharf, which was a good match where we both played well at the same day. The one in Manchester, he completely outplayed me. I basically just swung a few punches and <laughs> managed to sort of, you know, I was like the boxer that was on, I would have lost on points, but I managed to knock him out at 
15 seconds to go in the 12th round. You know, it felt like that. I felt like I didn't deserve that, but who cares? I've got the trophy. It was a bit like that. And then what was, your, what was going on in your head there out of interest? Nothing. That was, that was the time when I'd come back from the shoulder surgery. And I think that I'd had these good things in place and they just went out of the window a bit that night. And I just sort of just, as I said, was, was playing like a bit of a brawler rather than a thinker. Mm-hmm. And then I, that was a time when I sort of really then valued, I think, when I first came back from the shoulder surgery, my mental game had improved loads, but so had my physical and so had everything really. And then I think after a little bit of time, I maybe neglected the mental side and just thought, oh, it's just because I'm getting better, more experienced. And then that was a real match where even in victory, I went back to actually, you've got to, if you want to be a consistent number one in the world, you've got to be a lot more consistent with your approach than this. And that was a big learning match. Um, the third British Open with Rami at the O2 was probably the best I ever played. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was the only time I beat Rami three love. Um, yeah, he might not have had his best ever match, um, but there was a lot. You know, when you put a lot of work into something and it clicks. On yeah. that day, we mentioned at the start, there's so many variables in squash. You could be the best planner in the whole world, but it very rarely goes to plan. And that was one of the very few days that it did. And the game plan just paid off. The execution was good and. Very, very, it could count on one hand the number of times that probably happened in your mm. career. Mm. Um, even in first rounds, never mind the British Open finals. So that was a special day just in terms of the performance. Mm. No, well, thanks for reliving some of those. And, and geez, I, I, we could probably spend another hour going into it. <laughs> well, it's all in the past, though. You get to a certain point, don't you? And, you, and you're, like, uh, you're like an old man back in my day. And you sound like, uh, you know, reminiscing is... Uh, the reminiscing is where it's at now. You have a pint of beer too many and then you you, you know you start holding court on the bar. Back in my day, lad, we didn't do it like that. This is but this is what the people want to hear, Nick. This is why I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm digging going down in those weeds with you a little bit. But yeah. I'm conscious you've got a bit of homeschooling, you've got things to go. But I've got some some questions from players. Um you know, when, when I, I've started this series and people have been so excited about hearing from, you know, their favorite players and what what they we're talking about here. So um, I'll run through these. There's four of them. And I think they're really good from, from a couple of juniors and one from, a, from an adult. So how did you deal with failure and setbacks? And did this change from a young pro to a senior pro? Yeah, that, I mean, it's the, I sort of love and hate the saying that goes, you know, win or learn. Because it's one of those sayings that if your dad said it to you, you'd want to throttle him, wouldn't you? You know, you've just lost and your dad goes, oh, well, if you don't win, you learn. And you'd literally be like, dad, I want to kill you sort of thing. But it's so true. It's one of those things where like you you say it or you hear it when you're young and you just go, oh, shut up. (laughs) But, you know, it is true. You know, I'm a big, big, big believer. Um there's always a positive to take from everything. You just might have to sometimes sift through a lot of nonsense (laughs) or a lot of garbage to get there, but there's always something that you can take Mm -hmm. or a lesson that you can take to the next time. And I think that's the big thing. The key for me is learning the personality when to broach that. Mm. So if you do it too soon, some people want to do it straight away after. 10 minutes after the match. Tell me what I need to do better next time. Some people want to do it an hour late and some people want to do it the next day. Some people want to do it the next week. For me, you just have to figure out the right time to do that. Mm. I think it's the right approach, often done at the wrong time. And that's why it gets, um, what's the word? It's why it sometimes gets that um, sort of, resistance yeah it, it doesn't hit the mark it doesn't sink it doesn't in. hit the mark because it's the right advice delivered at the wrong time yeah, you know, yeah the, and the, the, my the, dad was a legend my dad was my dad was the best at knowing the exact right moment to deliver that stuff to me nice. whether it be in the car on the way home or whenever it was he just picked his moment so that it was just like a sniper he just put the shot on and just let it just let it just <laughs> just let it just sit there in the air until you were kind of ready 20 minutes further up the motorway to then say oh yeah dad and start talking about it yourself he was brilliant that. Nice. brilliant 
What a skill. Well, that, I, whether that's a skill you can learn as a coach or there was a naturalness to it there, him being a PE teacher probably lended itself to it. But yeah, for, for maybe parents listening, I think that's important because you, you see those parents at the end of tournaments straight up. They want to fix it, fix it, fix it. Yeah. Like, yeah. no, just yeah. like, let it breathe. Just chill. Yeah. <laughs> but if you let it too long, you know, do the side. If you let it too long, then um, there might not be the learning taking place. So it's yep. knowing exactly that sweet spot, really. Nice. Cool. Thank you. Um, so what do you think was the most effective daily habit you formed as a pro? Oof. I think for me was my, like my plan, like mapping it out, not just sort of getting to the Sunday night and going, what we're going to do next week. It was sort of almost having like a roll in three weeks where you'd, you know, cause you can't, it's very difficult to plan too far because things might change. But for me, like a roll in three weeks. So you'd have the next week set in stone. The week after was 70% there. You know, you left space maybe for a couple of hits because depending on who was available or where your coach was available. And then the week after you had a couple of things set in stone and then that would gradually, they'd, they'd evolve into each other, if that made sense. And um, that was a big thing for me. It mm -hmm. stopped me going like hand to mouth, yeah. you know, day to day. I could see ahead, okay, I've got a bit of a window there until the next tournament where I could put some work in now this week. Mm -hmm. um, oh, actually, the tournament will come around quicker than I realised, so I maybe need to get a few more matches in. Mm -hmm. Just mapping it out for me was a good habit. Mm -hmm. And then rather than just being a three-week block and waiting until that's finished and doing another three weeks, I did the roll in three weeks for me because that then almost sort of never never ended mm, nice yeah like and that that sounds like it very much lends to your character as well that might not work for might not work for yeah, might yeah not work. That, that's yeah. what I, I like about these conversations having with people and you know hopefully you saying that and and that one person that one young nick matthew that loves their planning and doing things and they can resonate what you did as a youngster boom that'll that'll hopefully motivate them to do it that for way me, for me as well it wasn't just the training side it helped it it, it made me realize when I've deserved to take a break as well. Mm -hmm. So actually, flipping out, I've, I've just done 12 weeks straight. You know, actually, <laughs> you know, I'm going to have a week off. And it's, you don't feel lazy then about that week off. Or, and then, so oh, I've got to do something. And then you might not be resting properly. It's actually like, no, no, I've deserved this. I've earned it. It's for a reason. And I'm having some time off. And, that, and that's actually part of training, recovery. But again, that side of it was done properly as well, not just the train, not just the actual hard training side. You learn when to recover by mapping it out as well. You know, that was something that I that probably all young players can be guilty of is you is feeling guilty if you don't train hard enough. But then if you're not careful, everything becomes a bit of a middle nothing like no man's land where you're too tired to really push because you've done too much over a number of weeks. But then if you, you, you feel guilty if you have a light session. So you end up doing a little bit, or an extra set of ghosts at the end or something. And then you can't train the next day because you're still tired. So mapping it out was big for me. It helped me, it helped me plan hard days, easy days, rest, matches, so on. Awesome, awesome advice. Um, yeah, love it. Uh, so what do you think of in between points? I quite like that question. Very simple, but what do you think of? Pretty much, you know, I think really touched upon this already, you know, simple one word um, advice to yourself, you know, talk to yourself, one key word, link it to, you know, so it's not just a random word and a different word every point. Sometimes you might need a fresh word just because your brain gets a little bit sometimes stuck in a habit if you don't. Every now and again, you might need a fresh word, but mm -hmm. generally speaking, link it to the original plan, link it to your style of play link it to what you're recognizing in front of you, you've lost your length, get a length back or whatever it is. So, you know what I mean? So generally just keep it simple, one key word and um, keep it positive as well. Mm. You know, too much talking between points is a negative about what's gone in the past. So instead of a, uh, that was rubbish, right shot, wrong time, you mm. know, or sorry, right shot, wrong execution or something, right? But it was the right shot. Mm -hmm. You know, trying to say a positive slant on everything. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, how do you expect to play the next point? Well, if you're beating yourself up in between rallies, you know, the human brain, you know, if you miss a drop volley by like that much, you know, and you're castigating yourself about it, you know, it's not, it's been a pretty good skill to miss it by that much. You should give yourself a pat on your back. 
Yep. Yep. That is that slightly softer inner voice. I think that's, that's important to hone and develop over time. Um, and then final question from, from some of the players is are you able to still tap into levels of consistency when you're not at your best on any given day, maybe that James example, possibly at the British open final, how, how are you able to find that consistency? You know, without a doubt, experience helps with that. Okay. You know, it, as, with the best will in the world, the harder for a junior who's not had that sort of evidence or experience, you know, to to fall back on at times of thing. But without doing it, you don't gain experience. So you know, always that. I mean, that's something, isn't it? A, a positive of every match. You take an experience from it. You're learning from it. And I think having that experience, you know, that you can win when you're playing poorly or not at your best. You know that not to panic in those situations when they happen again, which is key you know to shut the score out a little bit you know to bring it back to those little building blocks like you know just get a length again for five minutes you know start again don't worry about winning the point you know let it build again all these little things that you learn over time you might not have them when you're younger so just you know a little bit softer with yourself as you said a little bit more patient with yourself and trust the fact that next time you'll be in a better position from if you start to recognize it just because you recognize it, don't expect to be able to have the tools to fix it. You know, recognizing it is a great, I say that to people I coach. Now, if you start to recognize something yourself, that's, you know, almost like you're 50% of the way there. Mm, totally. I'm right. Um, and then hundred percent of the way there is recognizing and being able to adjust, yeah. but just recognizing is a great start. So if someone's recognizing and not in that position, you're already doing good things because next time, you'll heighten that awareness as to what, what mm. to kind of do. Yeah, I'm, I'm right on that same page there with you. Recognition is, is such, a, such a big thing. So yeah, hearing you say that really gives me that confidence. So let's, um, let's bring some of the listeners up to speed now. I know you've probably only got five minutes left, but so the, your, your coaching looks like it's blossoming. You've got some really great players in your stable there. Firstly, how are you enjoying the coaching? How are you enjoying the Nick Matthew Academy? I love it. You know, genuinely... You know, we've not been able to go on full capacity, obviously, for, you know, wow, it's the best part of a year now, isn't it? It's unbelievable. Um, but, you know, we've we've done what we can whilst sort of staying safe and staying healthy with everyone. Uh, we've been fortunate sort of in the, in the group. We've only, I think, had one case the whole time amongst the players. Um, and that was someone who had it from a, a family member. So we've, we've obviously done the right things to enable the players, first of all, to, to keep continuity. Um, and to be honest, the credit goes not to me, um, but to the players in terms of, for me, the motivation and the dedication that they've shown in this period. I've been, I've just been in awe, to be honest, in terms of, you know, not one player has had a dip in motivation. They could have been forgiven for doing so. They've all just continued training, even if it's been ghosting on the field, it's been running, it's been, you know, our SNC coach, Mark Campbell's amazing. He just sets the programs remotely for everyone when the lockdowns have been happening. Neil Gary is someone who's my assistant coach who keeps me on a level playing field. And I'm just learning from them. I'm learning from the players. I'm learning about myself as a coach. And I think this period, even though none of us wanted it, it would be a real learning curve steep learning curve where using the right way we can be better at what we do I'm still a relative novice at coaching mm. you know so far there's been more downs and ups in my coaching career because I'm basically because I'm desperate to have an impact with the players I want them to do well I'd do anything for them and you know love being on the court with them sometimes I probably put too much pressure on them without realizing it because I'm like come on when are you gonna win when are you gonna win and <laughs> You know, I'm learning to to let them be and to do it in their own time. And, and slowly but surely, you start seeing these little improvements and the penny drops in one or two things. And we've had time to work on a few technical bits where when the tournaments are always happening, it's hard, harder. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. Let's see if the results kick in. But, you know, it's a good process and, and hopefully we can keep growing. Yeah, lovely. And, and I keep keep an eye on the players and see what's going on. And yeah, look, it, it, you sound like you're being very reflective as, as a coach. You're learning along the way. You know, if anything of your career is to be reflected in your coaching, it's only going to be good signs. And I yes suppose, and no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not always one of the biggest lessons I've learned is what works for me or what works for me might be the worst advice you could give someone. It mm. might be good advice for someone. It might be not, you know, you have everything you have to 
tailored to that individual. That's probably the biggest thing I've learned, not just since lockdown, but since I started coaching full stop. Mm-hmm. You know, you go in with a set idea of this is how I used to play. This is how I'm going to coach. And it doesn't work like that because some players are not built to play the way you played, you know, but that if you tried to coach them the way you played, they'd be worse for it. Mm. They've got different strengths, you know, the way an Ali Farag plays or the way a Gregor Gaultier plays or the way um, Sarah Jane Perry plays or uh, Haniel Hammond plays, they're all uniquely different. So, you know, I'd be foolish if I didn't recognise that. Yeah, totally. Well, it sounds like your awareness, like you, we talked about the awareness is there first and foremost. Awareness is there, but then the actual <laughs> figuring out the rest of it. So what, what, what's final question? What's on the horizon for you coming up, both in squash and outside of squash? Look, I think it's much, much of the same at the moment. You know, mainly my main day today at the moment involves working with the pros who are very, very, we're acutely aware of how fortunate we are to still be able to train under the elite sort of provision that's number one, you know, so continue working with them, desperate to get them into some more tournaments again, you know, within, again, the right guidelines, desperate for the youngsters to get back, you know, the sort of challenger tours, because yeah. they're sort of, you know, there's been a few last year, haven't they, at the top, top level, but it's the next ones down that deserve their chance to showcase how much they've improved. They've lost about a year of their careers, which is tough, desperate for them to get in. And then, you know, from a personal point of view, I'm, keen to get out and about again and do a bit for squash, get around the country, try to rejuvenate and regenerate a few clubs with events that have not maybe had the best of time of it this year and, you know, get out and about and just see the squash community again. And, you know, I've one of my good, good friends, Nick Taylor, I've spoken to him a lot lately. And I love speaking to people like Nick and Danny Massaro is another one. And, I talked to DP who still mentors me as a coach and that whenever you're having the down days, just speak to someone who who's passionate about the sport. And if you just are having a down day yourself, you're very good at that. Just speak to those people who are passionate about the sport. And it just gives you like a little boost. It's like plugging into the charger. And I'm like, now just having talking to you, Jesse, for an hour, I'm now raring to go. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, Nick, that's really kind of you to say. And look, me for one, and, and a lot of us around the country will hopefully see you on your road shows, getting back out there. It's been an absolute treat spending this time with you, getting into the, the, the bits of your mind. Um, I know you're a busy man. You've got so much going on. Um, to find you, social media is probably the best way if people want to follow you the, you're on all the social media platforms, right? I am, yeah, I'm Nick Matthew Squash on Instagram, Nick Matthew on Twitter, and then, yeah, Nick Matthew Squash on YouTube. Hopefully we'll get some good contact, uh, content and contact, content out there in the, um, the coming months. And, um, yeah, believe me, um, I know you're asking me my question. Obviously, they're my opinions, aren't they? I yeah. think, you know, just a little bit of a disclaimer at the end there from me <laughs> that, you know, you're asking me my opinions and they're my beliefs and my opinion. None of it is set in stone far from it you know i'm still learning every day i'm learning about other people i'm learning about the mind i think what you're doing for this podcast is fantastic exploring that and it's certainly not one size fits all is it you know you can take little bits from everyone mm-hmm. uh, you know and i think that um even though they're my insights or experiences i'm just as keen to listen to the other podcasts and learn from your other guests as hopefully they are from me. <laughs> yeah, no, they are. And I think we're, we're trying to connect you with one of my previous guests, Simon Mundy. And yeah, he's yeah. got good stuff to say. Yeah. Nick, um, it's been an absolute treat. I hope we can pick this up again sometime in the future. Um, we hopefully know each other well enough to say, how's it at a certain point? And hopefully we can have a beer at a squash court sometime soon. That one, definitely the last one as well. <laughs> yeah. well have a great day. Cheers, Jesse. Thanks, mate. Presence, process, persistence, the essence of Squash Mind. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash 
Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.